open your eyes. He answered them, I have already, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you. Be seated. Effects and reactions. Everything has a a reaction to an effect. Someone says something, there is a reaction. Someone moves something, there is a reaction. We see the effects of the reaction and reactions that take place here in the life of this man who was born blind. When Jesus opened his eyes and commanded that he go to the pool of Siloam, And he came back to see. And what a marvelous miracle this was. Leo Tolstoy wrote, The most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed an idea of them already. But the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he is firmly persuaded that he knows already, without a shadow of doubt, what is laid before him. Very wise words. This is what's taking place. It seems that this is the case with the Jews as this man is questioned uh, as to the healing of his congenital blindness. A man who sat at the temple begging his whole life practically, living with his parents, groping his way around the city. And yet, the Jews are unpersuadable as of the facts of what had happened to this man. It says in verse 18 that they didn't believe the man's story, They thought he's possibly an imposter or someone who just looked like him until they heard from his parents. And they began to question then what had happened in their own minds, really. But we can see clearly in the verses that follow that they did not believe him and were unwilling to entertain the truth of the matter. Isn't that just like people? You can you can persuade, you can show you can show empirical evidence in a changed life, and yet people will refuse to believe. They were not really interested in the truth. All they're really after is some way 
to establish an accusation against Jesus that will stand and prove that he is a lawbreaker and have the ability to arrest him. After the parents were of this man were interrogated and their position in the community and in the temple threatened, they called the man in again. The Jews have demonstrated an erratic behavior. They are divided among themselves. They Some say it's true, others say it's not true. They cannot seem to come together. This seems to be the case with the Jews across the board with the, in the Gospels. They're always arguing with each other about one thing or another, and particularly as it relate, related to Jesus. They have shown their stubborn refusal to believe the clear testimony of not only this man, but of his parents. And now in verses 24 through 30, we see their, their unreasonable attitude. They have gone from erratic behavior to unreasonable behavior. They are desperate to find a flaw in the testimony of these witnesses. And so they called the man in again. This is not done even in a, in a court of law in our time. Uh, where the same testimony would be called up again by a witness. Once a testimony is given, it's recorded. And the court stenographer has it in, in, in writing what the person said. Every single word of it. But the Jews call this man in again. Now notice in verse 24, they say to him, give glory to God. Now what are, what are they using here as a, as a ploy? What are, they, what are they after? That seems very strange. To say to the man, give glory to God. Well, so what are they saying? Do they want him to praise the Lord? No, not at all. That is not what they're saying. What they're really saying is, stop lying about who healed you. Stop telling these lies about Jesus. There's a similar similar. Admonition found in Joshua chapter 7, where Joshua, after they, after Achan had gone into the tent and he had stolen the, the gold, the wedges of gold and the garments, after he had stolen them and hidden them in his tent, Joshua says to Achan in chapter 7, verse 19, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Give, him, give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Same kind of language. This really shines a light on the difference between the witnesses of the the witness of the man and the witness of his parents. Because somebody 
is lying. But it wasn't the man. All he did was tell what had happened to him. The man's answers were truthful and unashamed. The man Jesus put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash. I washed, I see. I mean, that's pretty simple. But his parents, though they knew much about the situation, they knew that it was Jesus who had done this to him. They knew the facts because he had explained it to them prior to this. They said, well, this is our son, and he was born blind, but how he sees, we don't know. He's of age, ask him. Why did they do that? Why did they lie about their knowledge of what had taken place? They, did, they lied because they knew if they didn't, they would be ostracized from the temple, which would mean they would be ostracized from society. And so, what we see in the parents is that they are actually abandoning their son and leaving him in the clutches of the Pharisees. What they should have done was to stand up to the Pharisees and stand behind their son. But they would not align themselves with Jesus through his testimony. They knew if they aligned themselves with Jesus, they would be cast out of the temple. They would no longer be able to come to the temple. They would no longer be a part of society, so to speak. Notice the next phrase that the Pharisees use here. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Well, they didn't know anything of the sort. Because Jesus had, had already challenged them back in verse 846, that if anyone could convict him of sin, they should stand up and do so. And they couldn't. Nobody could. The man was not concerned with whether Jesus was a sinner or not. Though his next answers revealed his opinion about who Jesus was, and his opinion had changed. All he knew was that he had been blind, but now he could see. What better testimony is there of that? Than that. I was blind, now I see. I once lived in darkness, groping my way around through through the streets and, and through people, and now I can see clearly where I'm going. He ignored their biased arguments and declarations and went straight to the truth. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is I was blind. Now I see. How many times had he been asked that question? A lot. 
When he came back from the pool of Siloam to his neighborhood, to his home, no doubt his parents asked him, what, what's happened to you? How is it that you can now see? His neighbors saw him. Is not this the beggar who used to beg at the temple? How is it that he can see? And now we hear it again. Not only has he been asked that already from the Pharisees, but now they are asking him the, again. What more could they ask of him? They were stalled for more, for more questions. Now the Pharisees ask the same questions that he, that he previously asked in verse 15. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Why would they ask the same questions a second time to this man when they had already questioned him and his parents? Maybe they didn't know what else to ask. Maybe they didn't know what other avenue to take to, to get what they wanted. And so they resort to their former questions. They question him as though they are a prosecuting attorney. Trying to trip up a witness to get some kind of other information from him. Wear him down. So he changes his story. There is no doubt that he knows what the Pharisees want him to say. He knows that. They, in essence, tell him what they want to hear. This is what they want to hear. We know that this man is a sinner. That's what they want to hear from his lips. He wants, they want him to say he is a sinner because he broke the law by healing this man on the Sabbath day. He admits that he does not know whether Jesus is a sinner or not, and he turns the tables on them. He suggests that they are trying to make a way secretly to become the disciples of Jesus themselves. We have to remember that there were some among this group that had believed. One in particular, it looks like, is Nicodemus. So there are a few. But when he said this, that struck a nerve in them. It infuriated the Jews. And the only response they could have now was to lash out at him. To, to try to discredit him in some way. This business of discipleship. Notice they said, we are the disciples of Moses. Discipleship to the Pharisees was a, was a big deal. Because it was, the, it was the task of Pharisees to gather around them certain disciples that they would teach. That would follow them. Follow them around and listen to their teaching. 
just like the disciples of Jesus followed him around and listened to his teaching. The only difference was the Pharisees did not teach the truth that Jesus taught. In fact, Jesus confronted them with this in Matthew chapter 23. Turn with me, if you will. In Matthew 23, Jesus is pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. Over and over again, we see it. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23, look at what he says. Uh, Excuse me, back up to verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Ooh, that's strong language. But this is what they did. They were not interested in the spiritual welfare of people. They did not care if a person knew God or not, just so long as they could call them someone, their disciple, and make a proselyte out of them. Someone they could say, this is my disciple. And those disciples, when they began to believe the same things, became twice as bad as the ones who had taught them. Do we not see this happening today in those who have followed false teachers from the past? I was, we were listening yesterday to a, a testimony by that fellow who played Jesus on the, on the, what was it called? Yes, the chosen, yes. The guy's a Catholic. He prays to and with the dead. Be very careful. They're all breaking the second commandment to make no, have no graven images before the Lord. Nobody knows what Jesus looked like. And nobody should try to impose what Jesus looked like. But it has become clear that it is error. In fact, in this latest episode of, of that show, they have Jesus quoting the Book of Mormon rather than the Bible. Be very careful. So in a fit of rage, they insist that they are Moses' disciples, even though they didn't follow Moses' commands. It was all a, it was all a show. It was all a, a ruse. It was a prestige of saying, I'm a disciple of Moses. 
People will often say, I believe in Jesus, and yet they do not obey Jesus' commands. They don't follow Jesus' word. They go about doing their own thing, living like they want to, and yet they want to call themselves Christians. People who do not follow Jesus' commands are not Christians. They're not believers. I've known many. Sometimes they can talk a good talk, but their walk does not match it. In fact, John makes it very clear, and Jesus made it very clear, that those who do not follow His commands and yet say they believe in Him are false. Listen to John 14, verse 15. Listen to what He says. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see, part of loving Christ, part of saying, I believe in Jesus, is to follow what he says. Now, nobody does that perfectly, but they have the desire to follow Him. They, they hate it when they don't follow Him. And they repent of that and seek to follow Him. John is very clear. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. I'm convinced that there are multiplied thousands of people all around us today who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I, I, I follow Jesus, but they, they don't do what He says. They don't live for Him, they live for themselves. Those people should be challenged as to what their life is before the Lord and be called out. Certainly, if that's true among our friends in secular society, it's certainly even more so true within the church when someone is not following Jesus, but yet they claim to know Him. So the Jews have nothing left to say. What are they going to say to this man? He has, he has, he has stumped them. And so all that's left is to start hurling insults at him, at least insults from their perspective. They say they know Moses, and they're Moses' disciples, and that Moses was God's spokesman. But they don't even know where Jesus came from, even though Jesus had told them numerous times that he came from the the Father in heaven. From above. But the Jews couldn't understand that. They could not understand that because they had no ears to hear with and no eyes to see who Jesus really was. They were blind. Spiritually blind. Spiritually deaf. 
And so they contradict themselves on every turn. In 727, John 727, they say, we know where this man comes from. And here in chapter, in verse 29, they say, we don't know where this man comes from. Well, which is it? Now they're so confused, they don't even realize what they're saying. And that whole thing of we know and we don't know plays out over and over with the, with the parents of the man and with the Pharisees and with the blind man himself. I know that I was blind, now I see. I don't know if this man's a sinner or not. They should have known. They should have known, they should have recognized where Jesus came from by virtue of the signs that he did. In fact, in chapter 10, we see that Jesus says to them, He is doing the works of the Father, and even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. They should have recognized that God was at work because here is a man who was blind from birth, who had never seen anything, and now he can see everything. It appears that some of them, at least some of them on the council, recognized the things that Jesus did were supernatural. Works that only God could do. They don't seem to be raising their voices any longer, however. We don't see the, the support coming from those among the council who believed that this was a supernatural act. That's just typical. It has been my experience over 43 years of ministry... That those who oppose the things of God are generally the most vocal. They raise their voices to the point that it intimidates those who want to follow God. It is time that Christians speak up and call out wrongdoing and call out error. We are either walking in God's path, or we're not. It appears that this man was losing patience with their line of questioning. He is not intimidated by their constant attempts to discredit Jesus through him. Matthew Henry stated it well. Those that are ambitious of the favors of God, must not be afraid of the frowns of men. If you're going to stand up for Christ, you can't be afraid of what people are going to think of you. Because they're going to think, they're not going to think really, real good of you. You have to be willing to take the insults, to wear the badge of fanatic or weird or of those of those who have don't don't know how to have any fun in life. 
You ever had anybody say that to you? People used to ask me, what do you do? I said, well, let's see now. I go to church. And I fellowship with uh, Christians. And, um, you know, that's pretty much the summation of my life. Don't you ever have any fun? You live a life of boredom. It's anything but that, my friends. You wonder what real boredom is? Real boredom is being surrounded by people who are sinning, and you're the and and you're so miserable because of that that you can't join in. That's boredom. Or you shouldn't join in. Their tedious questioning inspired this healed man to answer with a most marvelous comeback. Laced with sarcasm. Notice what he says. Verse 30. The man answered, Why? This is amazing. Can you see the sarcasm in that? How would we say it? Well, we would sort of say it like, uh, Really? You know, kids pick up on the things we say sarcastically. And even little kids. I remember one time uh, our little Jaya was sitting on the couch with us and she fell backwards on the floor. And we looked down at her and she said, really? <laughs> or, or it might be like this. Duh. You don't know where this man came from, and he opened the eyes of a blind man? Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God, God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That sounds a lot like teaching, doesn't it? Let me tell you something. Let me teach you something about what's happened to me. Well, that didn't go over so well. His sarcastic comeback, the brilliance of it, he rubs all that in the face of the of the Pharisees. His tone is meant to make them feel stupid. Now be careful doing that to others because it's not the nicest thing to do to try to make somebody feel stupid. But this is what he does. And so he says... Oh, so you who think you know everything don't know where he comes from? Look around. So he has just in a few sentences shown more spiritual and scriptural insight than all the Jews have shown up until this time. Just in that, those few sentences. He is saying that what Jesus did was something only God could do. Only God opens the eyes of the blind.
The eyes, his eyes that were he were born he was born with, would have never been able to see apart from the supernatural of God creating new eyes where blind eyes formerly existed. This work of God was irrefutable, and yet the Jews who were more blind than this man ever was, are totally ignorant of Jesus' supernatural origin and deny on every turn his supernatural work. You say, well, we don't have that today. We don't have supernatural works that we can point to and say to somebody, look, look at what God did. Yes, we do. We do have supernatural works we can point to. It is the change in the life of one who was a sinner, and now he is a saint. He is a believer. He follows Christ, and Christ has changed his life. One who was a drunkard no longer drinks and gets drunk. One who was a thief no longer steals. One who was a Pathological liar no longer lies. These changes are miraculous. They are works of the supernatural. It's like he's saying, can't you figure this out? You who pretend to know so much, you don't know where he comes from. The conclusion is that Jesus could not be a sinner because he was able to heal a man born blind, something no one else has ever been able to do. Therefore, he must be from God or he would be able to do nothing. Isn't that what Gamaliel said in in Acts? When the disciples were turning the world upside down? Did he not say... If these men are from God, then, then God is with them. But if, if not, nothing will come of it. Something did come of it, didn't it? They did turn the world upside down. So this is the kind of, you see, this is the kind, this circular thinking is the kind of argumentation that the Pharisees used. And now this man is using this same argumentation on them. That's why they were enraged. Because he was teaching them with the same method they used on other people. And that was the final, that was the final straw for these wicked Jews. Their arrogance is now out in the open. They would not be taught by a beggar. Their pride would not tolerate such a degrading of their status as teachers. Arthur Pink writes, How many a preacher there is today who in his fancied superiority scorns the help which oft times a member of his congregation could give him. Glorying in their seminary education, they cannot allow that an ignorant layman has light on the scriptures which they do not possess. 
Let a spirit-taught layman seek to show the average preacher the way of the Lord more perfectly, and he must not be surprised if his pastor says, in, not so many, in so many words, plainly by his bearing and action, Do you seek to teach me? Do you know, years ago, as I was as I was questioning the sovereignty of God in salvation as being an error, a layman came to me. And he asked me questions that I could not answer. And he kept on asking those questions week after week, month after month, until finally... I said, I I can't answer your questions. I'm going to have to find out for myself. And that drove me to the Scriptures. And for, for several years, I studied passage after passage that dealt with salvation, only to find at the end of the day that God was sovereign over the salvation that He gives to people. And what a glorious light that was when it shined on my life. It took all of the burden of me thinking I had to say just the right words or use just the right scripture to show or to tell someone the way of salvation. It took away the pressure in that, that dwelt in me and other pastors that I knew of saying, we had so many saved uh, last week, or, or whatever. Took it all away. It's not my business how many people get saved. I don't save them. It's God that does that work. All I'm responsible to do is just preach the truth of it. That's all I'm responsible to do. It's all you're responsible for. As much as you would love to see your loved ones and your friends saved... And you witness to them, you testify of Christ as much as you would like for them to be saved. That is not your work. Your work is simply tell the truth. Be the witness. That's all this man's doing. He's just being the witness. And we get the response that many times comes to us. Anger. Frustration, hatred, impatience. So now their only recourse is to brand the man as a reprobate and put him out of the temple. He is now judged by them as one who has sinned so completely that he was born blind. We see it in verse 2. We see it in verse 18. And so they put him out of the temple. Do you know the ramifications of that? No more going to the temple to worship. Being shunned, being shunned by the people in his town. Oh, there's that. There's that man who was put out of the temple. 
He's a reprobate. You see, what we don't understand is they were living in a religious society. But it was a lost religious society. It's not like ours. Ours is secular. People don't care about God or what God thinks in our society. It's very obvious. But in this society, it was all religious. It was all following what the Jews said. And if you did what this man did, you'll be put out of the temple too. His parents were not willing to take that line. They were not willing to stand with their son because if they did, they would have to stand for Jesus doing the work. You remember Epaphroditus from, from Philippians who ministered to Paul as he was in prison and Paul says, He was not ashamed of my chains. He visited Paul in the prison where Paul was, putting himself at risk. By aligning with Paul, he would be aligning with Jesus. But he didn't care. This was what his parents narrowly avoided. Having stood against the unbelief of the Pharisees, he would now find the inescapable pull of God's Spirit from the Father drawing him with God's great supernatural net of salvation by grace in God's Son, Jesus. MacArthur writes, as this passage illustrates, when unbelieving skeptics investigate the miracles of Christ or any other supernatural event recorded in the Bible, there can only be one outcome. Unless the Holy Spirit opens the blind, their blind eyes, they will deny the veracity of such accounts no matter what the evidence is. Have you run into that? You can show people over and over and over and over but if their minds are persuaded in another direction, it's like you're talking to the wall. The Pharisees in this passage were presented with living proof of Jesus' divine power. Yet, shrouded in unbelief, they attempted both to deny the undeniable and refute the irrefutable. As a former Pharisee, Paul would later write and explain why this happened. And he explained it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Turn with me. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. This is true universally of every person in the world that does not believe the truth of the gospel. Notice what he says. 2.14, 1 Corinthians. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There it is, folks. 
You want to know why people don't respond to your witness of Christ? You want to know why they seem to hate the Scriptures so much? It's because they think it is a load of foolishness. And what we're witnessing here is the outworking of what Jesus had said earlier in chapter 6, verse 44. All that the Father, no one can come to me, he says. No one can come. They are not able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. But when they do come and the Father does draw them, he never lets go. When God begins to draw someone to himself, it may be a long time before they actually come, but they all actually come. That's why we don't give up. That's why we, that's why we don't walk away and say, I forget you. I've only ever done that once in my entire life as a Christian. The Father in heaven is always working, always drawing sinners to the Son. All of those He draws end up coming to the Son, and all of the, them that the Son saves to the uttermost, with the final outcome of all of them being resurrected in the end. Isn't that a great hope? That, that when God saves us, He doesn't save us for just a short time and then leave us. He saves us to the uttermost. He saves us for eternity. And, and then He guarantees us by putting His Spirit in us that He will keep us and raise us up together with Christ on the last day. I'll tell you what, if I didn't have that hope I, in a world like ours... I think I'd go nuts. I have to remind myself constantly that what I see happening in the world and in our country and in our state is just too much to bear if I did not know that God, the sovereign God of the universe, was behind it and He will make it all good for us in the end. So hold on. Hold on to the truth. Stand for the truth. Stand for Christ. Even in the midst of embarrassment. Even in the midst of, of deprivation. Even in the midst of loss. Stand up for Christ. When your family disappoints you, stand up for Christ. When your friends forsake you, stand up for Christ. When they laugh at you, and try to embarrass you. Stand up for Christ. Because the end is going to be so glorious. And then those people who were laughing will not be laughing anymore. And you never know which one of those people God is going to 
grace with his salvation at some point in time. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day and for the blessing of your word, for the promises that you have made to us. And we count on them. We, we bank on them every day. We, we depend on you and you alone. No one can help us but you. And so I pray that you would encourage our hearts, teach us through your word, give us the confidence and the boldness to stand for you in a world that hates you and despises the, the righteousness and the goodness that you are. And if they hated you, they'll hate us too. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way that we put to shame the deeds of people in the world. Let them see that we do not stand where they stand. We do not believe what they believe. We, we only love what you love and we hate what you hate. Help us, Lord, to do that. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.